Please be seated. I'd like to ask you if you would join me in join me in prayer. Our Father, I ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning, one of my goals in preaching this sermon is to help us hear the words of John as if we are hearing them for the very first time. We hear them afresh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now, isn't that shocking, really? I mean, how does Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 begin? It begins, it says, in the beginning, God. And that's exactly right. It's exactly as it should be. In the beginning, God. Because it gives God the first place, uh, the first mention. God's the one who's absolutely supreme. God's preeminent. It's God. For heaven's sakes, it's God. So why or how could John fail to take this cue from Genesis chapter 1? Why wouldn't he write, in the beginning, God, or in the beginning, was God? Why wouldn't he do that? John, what were you thinking? He doesn't write that way. Instead, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He actually gives first place, first mention, to the Word. We'll return to this. But I hope you feel the shock of it. Because it's intended to shock us. I want you to notice a couple of other things before we return to it. Notice that John writes that the Word was with God. The Word was with God. This with does not mean close to, this with does not mean in the same picture, this with God is not about location like I'm with the baggage, this with is about relationship, not location. Uh, the term that's used here is the term that is used to describe familiar personal relationships. In Mark 14, 45, Jesus used this term when he said, Every day I was with you in the temple. Every day I was with you. Not just I was in the same place you were. I was, I spent time with you. We talked to each other. You listened to me. You asked me questions. I answered you. Every day I was with you. But can this same term mean the same thing? when we're speaking about eternity 
and not time, not just days or weeks at a place in our world. Well, in 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul wrote, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. <laughs> to be absent from the body is to be at home with the war, with the Lord. How, how warm that is. How, how dear that is. I want you to notice something else. That when John says, in the beginning, he is writing in the absolute sense. Now, Mark's gospel starts out with exactly the same word, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel. But there, beginning is, is qualified, isn't it? Mark is Mark's talking about a particular event. He's really talking about, and he's introducing the start of Jesus' ministry when he came to John the Baptist. That becomes very clear as you read to the, verse 2 of Mark chapter 1. He, uh, Mark is not saying that another, nothing ever happened before that when he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we have a lot of beginnings like that in our lives. We celebrate our birthdays as the beginning of our lives. But they're not really the beginning of our beginning, are they? We are conceived nine months earlier in the wombs of our mother. That's the absolute beginning of us. Well, the beginning of the fourth gospel is like that beginning. It's not talking about the beginning of Christ. It's talking about the beginning of all things other than God. It's talking about the beginning, as we would say, of the creation, that before there was anything, before anything happened apart from God, there was the Word who was with God. Absolute beginning with God, which means set aside the reference to creation when it talks about beginning, which means eternally. Now back to my point. To start off by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Is it God? Put the word first. And the word was with God. It is, it is, it is outrageous, honestly. It is, it is blasphemous. Unless the word who was with God in the beginning was himself God too. Unless he was absolutely equal with, with God. And that's exactly what John goes on to thunder when he says, and the word was God. That's shocking to our sensibilities. Would we not expect an either-or statement here rather than a both-and statement? Would we, would, would, does our logic not tell us that we should either hear that the Word was with God or we should hear that the Word was God? I mean, how can we be with what we are? But that's not what we have, not an either or. It is, a, it is a both and. John insists they are both true. And he insists on it. Because immediately after saying the word was God, he returns to exactly what he'd said just before. 
He was in the beginning with God. So in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. And then he returns that. He was in the beginning with God. Do you know what John's nickname was? Can anyone tell me what John's nickname was? The Son of Thunder. He was the Son of Thunder. Now, along with his brother James, that's what he was called, the Son of Thunder. Do you know who gave John that nickname? Jesus gave John that nickname. Mark 3.17 says that he, he nicknamed these boys, these brothers, the Sons of Thunder. And I'll bet you when he did, there was a lot of laughter and a little elbowing and a lot of nodding and probably some good nature scowling on the faces of those boys. But he knew and loved his disciples. He knew who they were. And this man was a son of thunder. And these were bold and forceful and brash men. They, they were not uh, the type to back away from a conflict or a confrontation. But they put themselves out there if they thought something really mattered. And knowing Jesus had deeply affected these men, both brothers, not so as to tame this rakishness, but to sanctify it. And I think this may help us understand how it was that James was the first apostle who was murdered by Herod. He was most likely, he wasn't a leader, but he was most likely the obvious troublemaker, the biggest sore thumb, the one that was most outspoken after Stephen, who was not an apostle, was martyred. So it was when Herod got fed up, he went after James, the loudmouth. And then, next, he went after Peter. And I think this understanding of these brothers as a son of thunder, sons of thunder, may help us understand, in fact, I think it does help us understand, how John introduces his gospel this way. I mean, boldly declaring from the beginning the eternal truth of Jesus that other gospel writers hoped their readers might reach as a conclusion. He begins with it. And then it's sustained throughout the gospel. And then the gospel from beginning to end comes with Thomas before the resurrected Lord saying, my Lord and my, and my God. This gospel was written by a son of thunder. We have to go on. I want you to notice something else. That when John reaffirmed what he had already said, he added a preposition of relationship to that preposition relationship with, he added a personal pronoun, he. He said he was in the beginning with God. So the word, the word was a he. The word was never an it. He was a person. He was a person. And we ask ourselves this question. How can this be? Does the text really mean what it says? Because the implications of this for the world, the worldview that you have, that I have, the implications of this are staggering. 
If you've never known this or heard this, if you have never believed this before, and you come to believe, it will change everything about the way you understand reality. Many argue on this basis, for this very reason, that this text means less than it appears to say. So to say that that he, the word, was God, it really means that he was divine, not full deity. He was divine in the sense of from God or or of God or God-like. Others also insist that the text means less than it appears. They take a different tack. They say of the word that he was God really means simply that he was a God, not the God. And so creating the possibility that there are, 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 are many, many gods. So the one argument often made this text does not mean what it appears to say, basically says um, that the word was less than, than the one God. The other argument is that he was actually one of many gods. And of course, you understand the implication, right? That being a god isn't really that big a deal after all. But in respect to both of these options, I'd like to make two comments. And the first is that if John meant to say that the word was divine and not the fullness, not himself, the fullness of deity, there is a term for that, divine. It's used of the attributes of God, divine power and so forth through the New Testament. It's used seven times in the New Testament. It's never used of God directly. God is God. He's not divine. He's deity. To say something's divine is to say that's less than God in his fullness. It's divine. It's not God in his fullness. It's used a number of times in the New Testament. But John does not use that word here. He uses the word God. I want you to notice, secondly, that if, if John, by all accounts, everyone recognizes, I think, and agrees, that he was a Jew... And he was committed to the Old Testament. If John did not believe that Jesus was God, the last error he would ever make would, to be, would be to use that word of him. Because that would go beyond recklessness. That would go to blasphemy. He would never have done that. It's clear from what John wrote, that he had no thought ever of contradicting the Old Testament anywhere or of overthrowing the Old Testament, but of building on it and completing the revelation that it began. And you see this in particular in our chapter in verse 17 when John writes, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law, grace and truth, there was never a sense, not even a, you know, 
you know, not even a smirk in his writing, that he was trying to crack the foundation of Old Testament reliability. And the premise, the foundational premise of the Old Testament is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall have no other gods besides me. And yet, here, John says, the word was with God. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? And the answer is, it leaves us exactly, exactly where John has brought us. It leads us exactly to the name that he has given to him who was God. John calls him the Word. God's Word. God's expression of himself. God's expression of his very being. To say this, that he was and is the Word of God, this is not only to say an expression of God's will, an expression of God's power, as we find this phrase, word of God or word of the Lord used in the Old Testament of spoken speech. But this includes the expression of being and nature. He was with God. The word was with God. And the word was God. And that means eternally expressed, eternally generated, sharing in the fullness of his deity and in fellowship with him. This expression, God's very self-expression was not a, you know, a hologram, some sort of projected but, but hollow image. No, but the very expression of himself. And that had to mean, that had to mean his being. He was living. He was a person. And you ask, why would God be like that? Why would God be this way, eternally expressing himself? And the answer is, the answer is, write this down. This is the answer. Because God is what he is. And all our perceptions of God until he reveals himself to us are approximations and we should not put too much stock in those. He is what he is. And obviously and amazingly, what he is includes loving. It includes giving light and life and sharing light and, and, and life. When the word became flesh, in the person of a humble Galilean carpenter and rabbi named Jesus. Then, then, this eternal and heavenly relationship between God and his word was reframed in the writing of the gospel authors to that relationship of the father to his only begotten son. If for no other reason than to bring to light this dimension of 
deepest love and fellowship between them. And I think also the principle of Jesus' absolute submission to God. It was not, you know, robotic. It was not programmed. It was deeply personal. It was fully voluntary and interpersonal. It was an expression of love for love. It was an expression of, of truth in response to truth. And it was, it was a beautiful and a wonderful and true interpersonal thing. It was beautiful. So when the word became flesh and when he dwelt among us, he lived in the land of the humans. Jesus began talking about this relationship. It was the father and the son, which is so helpful. I want to say this morning that I do think the outstanding commentator, D.A. Carson, is right. When he comments on John's gospel, on this point, and he cautions us against trying to understand John's naming of Jesus as the word, he cautions us against trying to understand this in terms of earlier Old Testament uses of the word of God or the word of the Lord to describe the law or wisdom or prophets, prophecy. He cautions against trying to understand John's use of the word of God, God's word, uh, in, light of, in light of contemporary philosophical use of the word, the idea of the logos in Greek philosophy. And his point is, and this is very important for us, his point is that John uses the word, logos, the word, to describe Christ. He uses the word in his own way compared with those others. He uses it in his own way. I'm not saying there's no benefit from looking at philosophy of his time. There's no benefit in looking at the historic use and significance of the word of God or the word of the Lord in the Old Testament. But the bottom line is John uses it in his own way. And it is the aim of the rest of the gospel to flesh this out. So we understand it. Not in abstract cosmic terms to which we cannot relate but so that we can understand it as we see displayed before us of in flesh and blood the relationship of the Son to the Father, which is from everlasting to everlasting. John tells us that on the last night before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus told his disciples, he said to them, but the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now, throughout John's gospel, throughout the gospel he's written, with this gospel John goes his own way. There's no question he goes his own way compared with other biblical writers, beginning with Matthew and Mark and, and Luke. No more than 10% uh, shared material with those other writers. 
but he goes his own way. And he's been criticized for this. This gospel is dismissed and criticized and rejected for this. But I want to tell you, John went his own way in the confidence that it was the Holy Spirit who was guiding him and bringing him into all truth. And we can be confident of that as well. And as we see, for all the wonderful questions John's gospel raises, John's gospel provides its own apologetic, its own defense, its own explanation. Powerful, potent. You know, it was as if it was written by a son of thunder. Here are two takeaways from John's opening words. John's words bearing witness to the word come from the word these words are meant to turn our assumptions about god upside down these words are meant to underscore the ignorance of our ignorance these words are intended to provoke us to ask ourselves or better yet to ask god what else don't I know? This voice that speaks this way in this gospel to me, what else does it have to say to me? What does it have to say about me? Where, will, where would this lead me? These words are meant to disorient you so that you become oriented toward Jesus as the way and the truth and the life of God for you who came to redeem you, who came to restore you. But people cannot honestly understand, though they may confess it or profess it, they cannot honestly understand that Jesus is the Christ, the, the, the Son of God. They cannot honestly understand that unless they understand this. You can't embrace Christ unless your, the worldview you grew up with is shattered. And you begin again now with Christ. Here's the second takeaway. These words tell us about God. That he has never been alone. That's mind-blowing. There has always been another who is with him. And this relationship of love for one another is as essential to his being and his nature as his holiness or his eternality or his unchangeableness. And if his word, if his word has come to us in Christ, it is to this end that he would be with us and we would be with him and so with God forever. And this being with him and his being with us, this is life. We'll see it in the next week. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. 
Look at that. So if the word has come to us, it is to this end, that he would be with us. In the same way the word has always been with the Father. And that we would be with him. And that we, together, would be with the Father. Which is exactly where the gospel heads in John 17. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the believing you may have this life, this life in his name. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and thank you for your word. And thank you for John's, the way you fashioned John, the way you created him, the way you redeemed him, the way you, the way you sanctified him, and the way you led him and revealed to him things that only came to him about Jesus upon decades of reflection and prayer and exposure to the work of your Holy Spirit. And then he and then as he wrote these things down, he actually inspired what was written. So what he wrote is exactly what we're to read. It really does come from you. Let all the world be skeptics. You're true and true forever. Lord, as we come to the table now, we're especially reminded of how, of what Jesus came to do for us. It all gets down to brass tacks here. And I ask that we would worship as we eat and as we drink. Amen.